and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, February 9th, 2024. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, the special counsel rules on Biden's classified documents and hints at memory problems. Mayorkas impeachment, Israel funding, and a border deal all fall apart. The Supreme Court engages in the 2024 election, and senators go after pharma CEOs on prescription drug prices. I'm also going to talk with Romina Baucha of the Cato Institute about a bipartisan push to find solutions to the deficit and our national debt. All that coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. Just a reminder, everybody, tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. You may get tired of me saying this at the beginning of every podcast, and and I can understand that, but this does help the podcast grow as more folks are able to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So if you're able to do that and tell a a friend or a family member about this podcast, podcast. We recap the week's news in Washington, D.C. I tell you who said what, what they said, and then you figure out what you think about it. And obviously a huge week of news here in the nation's capital. In my opinion, no better place to get caught up than right here. So tell your friends about the D.C. debrief. All right, everybody, here is your debrief for this week. Biden classified documents and memory in a bombshell document released by special counsel Robert Hur on Thursday afternoon. He was tasked with investigating whether President Biden would be prosecuted after the reports that Biden had classified documents stored at his home improperly. Hur announced that although the president willfully held these documents from the time he left the White House as President Obama's vice president until now, they would not pursue any legal action against him. Now, while Republicans are taking to social media complaining about a two-tier justice system, one that punishes Donald Trump for improperly holding onto classified documents while not doing the same for Biden, the report claimed a jury would not find Biden guilty because the president suffers from serious mental lapses and memory issues. The report noted that in one-on-one interviews with the president last October, he routinely forgot the dates he was vice president and when he became president, and in the bombshell revelation, at one point could not remember the date of his late son, Beau. Biden is already hampered by worries about his age and mental acuity on the campaign trail, angrily defended himself in a surprise, rare, primetime impromptu press conference at the White House last night. On page 12, the special counsel also wrote for another documents, the decision to decline criminal charges was straightforward. The evidence suggests that Mr. Biden did not willfully retain these documents. The evidence said I did not willfully retain these documents. Some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. That's, uh, that's, that's what your memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, president? No, my memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. The president noted that the depositions occurred on the same day as the Hamas attack in Israel and that any lapses may have been the result of being distracted handling an international crisis at the same time he was undergoing these interviews. The president also attempted to draw a distinction between himself and Donald Trump. Trump, of course, charged with not only improperly having classified documents, but then engaging his legal team to lie to the federal government about the existence of those documents, along with charges of obstruction uh, obstruction of justice. Biden points out he notified the Justice Department about the documents at his home, cooperated fully with the investigation and blamed his staff for bringing those documents to his home after leaving the White House in 2016. The White House obviously defending the president, calling the the remarks, the the portion of the report by her dealing with the president's memory inappropriate and inaccurate, saying that it was it's not the DOJ's place to opine about the president's mental acuity, his uh, his memory and his mental fitness in a report like this. It's clear 
that Republicans, especially Trump, will use the accusations of memory loss and mental acuity decline in the special counsel's report against the president on the campaign trail. And Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney became the first member of Congress to officially call for the cabinet to consider removing Biden from office under the 25th Amendment. But that is a chorus that is growing online in conservative circles, of course. Biden also did make a little news after he answered some questions about the report when he was asked about hostage negotiations between Israel and Hamas, when he said that in his view, Israel's approach to waging war in Gaza against Hamas was, quote, over the top. Later in that response, the president also confused the president of Egypt, saying he was the president of Mexico, obviously a verbal gaffe. Republican critics pointing to that gaffe, especially in light of the report, citing that the president had memory problems, essentially saying, look, here is proof of that in this in this news conference. Another mental gaffe, another another misstep. The White House, President Biden defending the president's gaffe, saying and his supporters saying the president has made these kinds of mistakes going back to when he was in the White House with President Obama. And that that kind of a a a mental gaffe or a, a miscue is not uncommon for President Biden or anyone else on the campaign trail, as Nikki Haley and President Biden have been attacking Donald Trump for recent slip-ups in campaign events. Mayorkas impeachment. In a shocking turn of events on Capitol Hill, Republicans on Tuesday failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after three Republicans voted no and thanks to a last-minute appearance from a hospitalized Democratic lawmaker. CBN's George Thomas recaps the dramatic vote. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. Attempts by House Republicans to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas failed by just two votes, with four Republicans siding with all Democrats. The GOP accusing Mayorkas of willfully refusing to stop migrants from entering the country illegally, resulting in record numbers of crossings, nearly 250,000 in December alone. The Secretary of Homeland Security has blatantly ignored the laws of the United States he is charged to faithfully execute. He has done so with reckless abandon. Democrats saying this is essentially a policy dispute and doesn't rise to the level of high crimes or misdemeanors. It would have been the first time in the nation's history that a sitting cabinet official was impeached. Impeachment is one of the most solemn, serious, somber things that we can do in this body. It's not something that ought to get thrown around lightly or invoked when you disagree with someone or you don't like their policies or you don't or you think they're doing a bad job. Speaker Johnson reportedly plans to bring up the measure again. Now, a big part of this story was some subterfuge undertaken by the Democrats. Republicans went into the vote thinking they were able to lose three GOP votes, which they, of course, did. Representatives Gallagher, McClintock and Buck all said no, but they were not expecting Democrat Al Green to be there for the vote. So they felt like with those three no votes, even with those three Republican no votes, they had enough to impeach Mayorkas. But at the 11th hour, Green was wheeled into the chamber by a colleague straight from the hospital where he was recovering from surgery in nothing but a hospital gown and socks. And he cast a deciding no vote that tied the vote 215 to 215. Republicans then tried to convince Gallagher to change his vote, but Gallagher would not. So a fourth Republican changed his vote from yes to no in a procedural maneuver that will allow the Republicans to bring the articles back up for a vote at a later date. And it's expected that will happen once Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, who is currently absent, undergoing cancer treatments, is ready to come back. But that wasn't all. Right after that vote, Speaker Johnson also brought up a standalone bill that would provide $17.5 billion in aid to Israel. Now, because of the rules that were in place at the time of the vote, the bill needed a two-thirds majority to pass, and the vote failed, 250 to 180 in favor, failing to get the two-thirds majority. Most Democrats opposed the bill, although 46 did vote for it, while all but 14 Republicans, all from the far right, voted in favor of it, but there were 14 Republican no votes on that standalone Israel package. On Wednesday, in the aftermath of it all, a day later, 
Speaker Johnson was asked about the chaos and the defeat Republicans suffered this week. Yeah, on impeachment, last night was a setback, but democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor-thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. But listen, we have a duty and a responsibility to take care of this issue. We have to hold the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security accountable. Mayorkas needs to be held accountable. The Biden administration needs to be held accountable. And we will pass those articles of impeachment. Uh, we'll, we'll do it on the next round. Now, as someone who has made sausage before, I've uh, dabbled in making uh, Lithuanian kielbasa. Uh, I will 100% concur. It is messy and it's kind of gross too. Senate border deal, or should I say no Senate border deal? The Senate had their own issues this week with dissension among the troops. That much talked about border deal that Republican James Langford, independent Kirsten Sinema, and Democrat Chris Murphy were working on for months blew up on Tuesday after Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said there was no path for it to become law. However, we had a very robust discussion about whether or not this product could ever become law. And it's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the speaker that it will not become law. Multiple Republican senators came out in opposition to it. Speaking on the Senate floor Wednesday, Senator Lankford said after being deputized by McConnell to engage in these negotiations, he's now being hung out to dry. In fact, I had a popular commentator four weeks ago that I talked to that told me flat out before they knew any of the contents of the bill, any of the content, none, nothing was out at that point, that told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. Because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise and have done everything they can to destroy me in the past several weeks. Cinema accused Republicans of playing political games and being hypocritical over their stated concern that the border is a top priority. But less than 24 hours after we released the bill, my Republican colleagues changed their minds. Turns out they want all talk and no action. It turns out border security is not actually a risk to our national security. It's just a talking point for the election. After all of their cable news appearances, after all those campaign photo ops in the desert, after all those trips to the border, this crisis isn't actually much of a crisis after all. However, Republican Senator Ted Cruz said there were very good reasons for Republicans to be opposed to it. On policy, why is this bill a terrible bill? Because it does not solve the problem. We have the worst rate of illegal immigration in our nation's history. People are dying. Children are being brutalized. Women are being sexually assaulted. Over 100,000 people died of overdoses last year. This bill doesn't fix it. The $118 billion deal would have contained a trigger that would be tripped if the average number of migrants encountered by border officials went past 5,000 over the course of a week or 8,500 on any given day. Encounters would have to fall to a daily average of 75% of those thresholds, again, over the course of a week. Uh, in order for the uh, intake processes to start back up again. The bill also would have given the president power to close the border if migrant encounters reached an average of 4,000 per day over the course of a week. Now, Republican critics argue those numbers are still way too high and say President Biden has the tools at his disposal now to close the border if he wanted to do so. Democrats argue that if the president does have those types of powers, then why was their second bill in this new Congress H.R. 2, a more restrictive House border security package. Speaker Johnson and other Republicans like Senator Cruz have said that this border agreement does nothing to address border security, even though it does have immigration issues in it. On Wednesday, Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer brought the bill, which was to, which was tied to funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan as well, to the floor knowing that it would not get the 60 votes needed to pass the procedural hurdle, and he was right, it failed 50 to 49. Now on Thursday, the Senate did break the filibuster on a $95 billion aid package just for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, 67 to 32, with the border stuff stripped out of it. That will be on the floor until sometime next week. 
it will need to get another, it will need to pass another 60 vote threshold in order to move on to the final stage. And it remains to be seen whether there is enough bipartisan support for it to get through the next hurdle. SCOTUS engages in the 2024 election. On Thursday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that will have a direct impact in the 2024 election. It is the most consequential case the Supreme Court has heard oral arguments on and considered during an election year since Bush v. Gore back in 2000. At issue, whether or not Donald Trump should be kicked off state ballots due to the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. CBN News White House correspondent Abigail Robertson has more on the arguments. The Colorado Supreme Court's decision is wrong and should be reversed. Trump's lawyers argue January 6th was an unorganized riot, not a planned insurrection. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection. Jason Murray, the plaintiff's attorney, disagreed, arguing the former president did indeed commit insurrection and specifically address the 14th Amendment as precedent. Well, what they were concerned most about was ensuring that insurrectionists and rebels don't hold office. And I would note that if President Trump were appointed to an office today, if he were appointed as a state judge, he could not hold that office. Throughout the argument, all nine justices appeared skeptical of whether or not states have the authority to remove Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. Many legal experts predict the Supreme Court seems unlikely to rule in favor of Colorado keeping Trump off the ballot. A state cannot exclude any candidate for federal office from the ballot on account of Section 3, and any state that does so is violating the holding of term limits by altering the Constitution's qualifications for federal office. President Trump says he's leaving his fate up to the justices. An argument that uh, is very important is the fact that you're leading in every race, you're leading in every state, you're leading in the country against both Republican and Democrat. And Biden, you're leading in the country by a lot. And can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court. With the Colorado GOP primary set for March 5th, it is likely we will see an expedited decision from the Supreme Court within a few weeks. It typically takes months for the high court to make a ruling after they've heard oral arguments, but understanding ballots in some states need to be sent to the printers in a matter of weeks, the Supreme Court is expected to issue a ruling of some kind sooner than that. Trump D.C. court immunity. The Trump camp was dealt a blow earlier in the week by a D.C. appeals court panel, which ruled three to nothing that Trump is not entitled to full immunity for his time in the White House. Calling him Citizen Trump in their written arguments, in their official decision, they argued that allowing presidents to have unlimited immunity would do great harm to the country, and it is not what the founders intended. Trump pushed back on Truth Social, saying he and other presidents must have total immunity. Otherwise, they will be fearful to make decisions while in office for fear their political enemies will go after them once they leave office, something he claims Democrats are doing to him with the 2020 election and classified documents cases against him. This all comes against the backdrop of Trump as the likely GOP nominee for president, of course. But as CBN News chief political analyst David Brody tells us, this is just one of the things that could be drawbacks to a second Trump term in office. As Donald Trump predicts his re-election, he's also clearly making his intentions known. Within moments of my inauguration, we will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in America. And his supporters are banking on it. We need four more years of Donald Trump to secure our border. There are plenty of critics, however, who believe a second Trump term presents numerous problems. To start, as he approaches 80, some question his mental fitness. The Biden campaign is capitalizing on a recent incident when Trump mistook Nancy Pelosi for Nikki Haley when it came to January 6th. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. 
They don't want to talk about that. I wasn't in office then. Overall, Democrats paint a picture of chaos, and so does his only remaining Republican challenger, as Nikki Haley told us in December. Chaos follows him. We all know that chaos follows him, and we can't be a part of that. But we can't be a country in disarray and have a world on fire and make it through four years of chaos. We can't. Some of that chaos could be on the legal front. Former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti believes there's a good chance Trump's multiple trials will not be decided by January's inauguration. He's going to have to deal with those to one in one way or another if he becomes president again. The two federal cases, which include the Mar-a-Lago classified documents and charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election, could cause the most commotion. If none of these come to trial, or they're in the middle of a trial, or whatever, and then he becomes president, and it's January X, 2025, he's sworn in as president, and he's in the middle of a trial? I mean, wait, I'm confused. What, what, what happens? I would expect the attorney general, who, by the way, it ultimately is who all those federal prosecutors report to in one way or another, would then instruct those federal prosecutors not to continue their prosecution, which would be, I think, very, very controversial, to put it mildly. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Drama That's could also extend to the state cases. In Georgia, he's charged with election interference and in New York, making hush payments to Stormy Daniels. The states can't be ordered uh, by the president to stop their prosecutions, but um, there's, I think, would be a very valid legal challenge that the states aren't able to continue their prosecutions of the sitting president. You can imagine some real legal fights there. So I think that'll be a very significant distraction uh, in a second Trump term. And then there's a potential question of separation of powers. If a judge, for example, is going to try to sentence uh, Trump to a, a period of incarceration while he's president of the United States, there are very serious questions about whether she can do so. Um, and uh, one thing I will point out is that the judiciary does not enforce their rulings. The executive branch does, which, of course, is headed by the president and his attorney general. So I think that would be very challenging and problematic. All in all, from the former president's predictions of a second term to the legal questions, critics will continue to capitalize on potential chaos to prevent a second Trump administration. David Brody, CBN News, Washington. But of course, Trump got a big win uh, with the special counsel's report uh, of President Biden and his handling of documents and memory issues. So uh, what looked to be a rough week for the for the former president at the start uh, turned out to feature one of the best days of 2024 for him on the campaign. Boeing under the microscope. The aviation company is under a lot of pressure from lawmakers right now as the as Boeing tries to explain why bolts that were supposed to keep a door in place on an Alaska air flight last month blew off mid-flight. The head of the Federal Aviation Administration, Michael Whitaker, testified before the House Transportation Committee this week about the incident and said the FAA will be scrutinizing the production of planes from Boeing more closely moving forward. We will have more boots on the ground closely scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. Boeing employees are encouraged to use our FAA hotline to report any safety concerns. Let me stress, the safety of the flying public is our mission, and we will continue to, it will continue to inform our decision-making going forward. A preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board found the plane arrived at Boeing's factory with five damaged rivets near the door plug installed by supplier Spirit Aerosystems. A Spirit crew replaced the rivets, but had to remove the four bolts in order to do so. It's not clear who removed the bolts, whether it was Spirit or Boeing, but text messages between Boeing employees who finished working on the plane included a photo showing the door plug with bolts missing. Yellen about the economy. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified twice this week, first on Tuesday before the House Financial Services Committee, and then later in the week over on the Senate side. In the hearing with House Republicans, Congresswoman Ann Wagner asked Secretary Yellen about a report that the government has been instructing financial institutions to report any transactions over a certain amount, $600, to the government, to the Treasury Department, for the purposes of surveilling Americans' purchases. Increasingly, we are hearing the Fed, the federal government is suggesting banks search private financial transactions using highly partisan political terms, 
or check to see if customers made purchases that could be associated with legal sales of like firearms or even religious texts. My question is this, has Treasury, including FinCEN or federal banking agencies like the Fed, FDIC, OCC, instructed financial institutions to search Americans' legal transactions in attempts to surveil their purchases? Well, we received a letter from you, I believe, on this topic, and we intend to investigate fully and to respond. Have you instructed you banks have and financial institutions, institutions to provide this information? Well, FinCEN's job is to work with financial institutions to make sure... Are they instructing them? Financial institutions to search Americans' legal transactions in attempts to surveil their purchases. I, I promise a thorough look into everything. Well, this that's is really heard. concerning, and I would hope I'm that you get to it just as quickly as pa possible, Madam Secretary. You heard Representative Wagner mention FinCEN, that is the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Yellen did say that FinCEN is proposing a regulation that would require some real estate professionals to report information to the agency about non-finance transfers of residential real estate to legal entities, trusts, and shell companies. In short, they're looking for more transparency into all cash purchases of real estate as a way of combating money laundering and dirty money through the U.S. financial system. Money laundering in the real estate arena does affect you, by the way, the homeowner. Studies show that in Canada, the impact of money laundering has pushed up housing prices there anywhere from 3.7 to 7.5%. Yellen was also pressured in her hearings about the Biden administration's response to Iran, which has come under fire from Republicans who believe the Biden administration has allowed the Iranian regime to enrich themselves by failing to enforce sanctions and allowing Iranian oil exports to go up. Also, Yellen defending the $6 billion unlocked to go back to Iran being held by Qatar. Yellen says the administration has done a good job tamping down on Iran. The $6 billion that you're referring to were Iranian funds that were frozen in Korea. And yes. we permitted these funds to be transferred to um, Qatar. They can only, both in when they were in Korea and now, can only be used for humanitarian purposes and there are strict controls to make sure that they are directed only at humanitarian uh, purposes. Thank you. Prescription drug prices hearing. On Thursday, the Senate Health Committee, led by Chairman Bernie Sanders, invited the CEOs, I guess it would be more accurate to say demanded, that the CEOs of some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the country come to Capitol Hill for a hearing on prescription drug prices. At issue, why prescription drug prices are so much higher here in the U.S., than in other parts of the world. CBN's Hillary Powell has more on that. The CEOs for these drug makers originally really didn't want to testify. Two decided to speak to the committee only after being threatened with subpoenas. Lawmakers provided some really personal and intimate situations of constituents who often can't get help dealing with all of these crippling costs. Her choice is to pay the $350 and go without food or pay her rent late, or not take the drug and risk heart attack or stroke. Senator Chris Murphy's description of a patient covered by Medicare facing that kind of choice left one drug company CEO struggling to find words. That is a choice no patient should have to make. But, but, she, but she makes it. She makes it because you have chosen to price a drug at a point that is unaffordable. That specific drug, Eliquis, used to treat blood clots and help reduce stroke risk. The CEOs of Merck, Johnson & Johnson, and Bristol-Myers Squibb faced intense questions from senators Thursday about why U.S. prescriptions are far higher than those in other countries. For example, annually, Bristol-Myers Squibb charges U.S. patients $7,100 for Eliquis, while that same product can be purchased for $900 in Canada and just $650 in France. Due to those costs, a Senate report shows one out of four Americans cannot afford the medicine prescribed by their doctors. We are beginning, beginning to take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. 
Committee Chairman Senator Bernie Sanders credits the Inflation Reduction Act for allowing Medicare to negotiate for lower prices. The CEO of Johnson & Johnson pushed back, arguing price caps don't help create newer products. Congress should stop middlemen from taking for themselves the assistance that pharmaceutical companies intend for patients. And finally, it is essential that we reject the price caps and controls that exist in other countries which stand innovation. The companies did eventually agree to work on prices for patients most in need under Medicare. There are still patients for whom this drug is absolutely not affordable. That's not acceptable. Medicare in particular is a space where we can't provide those types of copay support programs that we do in the commercial setting, so we would love to work with Congress on that. Brand name drug prices are generally substantially reduced by rebates that these drug makers actually give to pharmacy benefit managers and wholesalers, but the system really doesn't always pass savings along to patients. Legislators say they want to see more transparency in all this and find out just where some of that money in the product chain is going. Hezbollah threat in the U.S. as Israel's fight in the Middle East increasingly evolves into a two-pronged war now involving Hezbollah in the north, there are concerns about the terror group's ability to launch attacks here inside the United States. CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on that. According to new data gathered by U.S. intelligence agencies, the risk of an assault by Hezbollah is rising alongside growing tensions in the region. Hezbollah is a very real threat to us here in the United States. Simone Ledeen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Mideast Policy, says the Iran-backed terror group has a longer reach than many others in the region. They have sleeper cells here in the U.S. in many cities across the country. This has been documented in multiple court cases, um, and we uh, have reason to believe that they also have caches where they have stored materials around the country um, in the event that someone hits the go button to start attacks. Uh, I believe they are pretty well prepared. They have been sitting in wait for the order to go for many believe for years now. As official Washington proceeds with caution due to concern about sparking a wider regional conflict, experts like Ladine warn we're already past that point. I think that we uh, we collectively are in uh, an expanding regional conflict. Um, and as much as we are resisting it right now and the current administration is resisting responding to it right now, we uh, we are in it. We should be reconsidering our strategic objectives. What's our end game here? Um, and how do we get from here to there? Because right now here is not a good place for the United States to be. It is not in the U.S. interest to be sort of on the defense. Since the start of the war in Gaza, American troops in the Middle East have been attacked more than 160 times. Most recently, a drone strike in Jordan killing three American soldiers and wounding 47 others. Also, a close call in the Mediterranean, with a U.S. warship being forced to rely on a weapon system known as the Navy's last line of defense to destroy a Houthi missile only seconds from impact. We need to be aligning with our partners, the Israelis, the British, um, and some others, and maybe share some targeting packages and start executing some military operations to make sure that the Iranians, but also our, our other adversaries who are watching, so that they understand that a red line has been crossed, Americans have been killed, um, the disruption of global uh, shipping is not something that we are willing to accept, and uh, let's sort of change, let's change the dynamic. Iran remains the common element between all of these players, and Ladin says the regime has complete control over its proxies. Still, official messaging coming from Iranian leadership following these most recent attacks, we're not after a war with the U.S., but will respond strongly if, quote, an oppressive country or force wants to bully us. Caitlin Burke, CBN News, Washington. All right, everybody, like I said, a very busy week here in Washington, D.C., and that is your debrief for this week.
Well, as we talk about different pieces of legislation that Congress wants to enact, of course, there's the uh, the tax bill that we talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast with the child tax credit. There's, of course, money that you're going to spend in national defense and then a myriad of other different programs dealing with infrastructure and everything. This all costs money, as we all know. And when we talk about tax breaks, tax cuts, we talk about raising taxes, it all hits the bottom line in the national debt and the federal deficit. And of course, it's a big issue that many on Capitol Hill, many across the country are concerned about. And joining us to talk a little bit more about that is one of the nation's experts on this topic, Director of Budget and Entitlements Policy at the Cato Institute, Romina Bacha. Romina, thank you for joining me here on the DC Debrief. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. I know you've written a lot about this. Uh, you've you've testified in, in uh, congressional hearings on this issue, and uh, you specialize in an area of of governmental fiscal responsibility. One of the things Congress is looking to do right now is create a fiscal responsibility commission that's going to take a closer look at the national debt. We hear a lot about the debt, right? How harmful it is for the future generations of our country, and of course, there are no easy answers to not only just slowing it down and even getting us back to zero, but then eating away at the debt and getting us back into a more balanced situation. To your understanding, what will this commission look like and what will be its mission? Yeah, so there is uh, there are two bills right now, one in the House and one in the Senate, and <clears throat> they've become more aligned recently after the House uh, Budget Committee markup. Um, this means that there's a higher likelihood that... Um, the fiscal commission might pass in this Congress. There's some talk about attaching it to the final government spending bill sometime in March. Um, What both of the bills would do, it's called the Fiscal Commission Act in the House and the Fiscal Stability Act in the Senate, is that they would set up a 16-member fiscal commission composed of 12 legislators picked by Um, the House and Senate and distributed evenly among both parties in terms of the legislative composition. There would also be four expert members, but they would only be joining in an advisory capacity so they could advise the legislators on the commission, but only legislators would be empowered to vote on the final proposal. The commission would likely perform its work between March and December with the option for the commissioners to agree to extend their deadline to report out um, into next year. Um, In either case, if the commissioners uh, are able to agree, at least a simple majority of them are able to agree to a package that would stabilize the debt at no more than the size of the U.S. economy over the next 15 years, and reform Social Security and Medicare in a way where their trust fund sustainability is extended um, with the goal of 75-year solvency, if they can come put a package together that can accomplish those two goals and agree on it, then it would be considered in Congress under expedited consideration. That means no amendments, limited debate, uh, but it would still have to overcome a 60-vote threshold in the Senate. So what that means is that Congress has now set up a process to bring more attention to the state of the debt, the policies that are necessary to stabilize our debt, and um, a mechanism to consider it in Congress, but the bill will still face an uphill battle because we're talking about the biggest, most popular uh, entitlement programs, Medicare and Social Security. Um, so I, w- I don't think this this is a done deal. We're just taking a step in the right direction. Right. And, and those are, it's the third rail, right? I mean, you hear that all the time in, in politics. Those are two issues that just generate so much uh, emotion on one side or the other. They've been around for forever. And of course, the, the, the track that we're on, it's certainly not sustainable for those programs to exist in the future the way they exist now without without some changes. And it, it, would, it would seem that most people ag- agree on that. Certainly it is still a, a political football, but in order to tackle this issue properly and in order for this commission to really wrap their hands a- around it, you, you laid out some of the steps that, that need to happen. Can, can that even be done in a, in a Congress that's that's as divided as it is? is do, you, do you get the sense that there's enough bipartisan support that at least these issues need to start being looked at, let alone agreed to what to do about them? 
So if you take the House Budget Committee vote as an indication, um, only three Democrats joined um, all Republicans to vote in favor of the F Fiscal Commission Act to move forward. So that's why I say it still faces an uphill battle. Um, support is also unclear in the Senate, which is why there is talk of attaching it potentially to a must-pass government funding bill to give legislators more political cover um, to vote potentially for the Fiscal Commission bill uh, as part of an, a, an attempt to avoid a government shutdown. That's usually how business gets done in Washington. But from my experience also observing some of the hearings that were held in the House Budget Committee before the markup of this bill, um, you, you can tell that there's uh, there, that there isn't even broad agreement on the fiscal challenge that our nation faces with some Democrats engaging in what I would call an exercise of hand-waving and grasping at straws, including supporting a, a debunked economic theory of modern monetary theory, which posits that um, lawmakers could just print all the money that they think they need to spend in order to have a strong U.S. economy without appreciation for the inflationary consequences that such a policy would have. So there's a lot of debt threat denial. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that even if the commission doesn't succeed in actually implementing changes that would stabilize the debt, um, it could potentially do a lot of good by um, enhancing congressional understanding of how the economy works, why debt at the levels that we have is dangerous and needs to be addressed, and what the consequences would be of failure to address uh, the debt before we have a severe fiscal crisis. So an educational campaign is a, is a key cornerstone of this fiscal commission effort. And I think there we have more agreement on both sides of the aisle that we need uh, more education in Congress, but also among the public uh, it, it, in terms of the fiscal state of our nation and the role that Medicare and Social Security play in driving us into a debt crisis. Right. And, and because I, I think one of the questions I was going to ask you is, does it feel like maybe there's some defeatism in, in, in Congress and really in the country as a whole that this problem has gotten so large that something can even be done about it? I mean, is you can set up a commission, but is, is the, are we so far gone that it, how long would it take to unwind? It's, so, it's been so much easier to spend the money, so much less to make it up and pay for it. And as I mentioned, even, even just to slow the train down, let alone stop it, and then start to reverse course a little bit seems like a daunting multi-generational task that it, it feels like it's hard to know exactly where to start. So in your eyes, and maybe, I don't know if you've sp spoken to some of the folks who would be on this commission, you mentioned educating the country is the place to start. Educating members of Congress is the place to start. As far as actually putting some things in place, what are some first steps that can be taken to just start to move the ball down the field? You know, in many cases, we're just talking about slowing the growth in spending on these programs. For example, with Social Security, there is a simple change that Congress could make right now that could actually achieve 75-year solvency without any benefit cuts to current beneficiaries by just slowing the growth in the initial benefit calculation. Um, the in initial benefits right now, rather than taking into account what people actually earned and contributed to Social Security over their lifetimes, the, the government policy right now is to index previous earnings for wage growth in the economy, which means that beneficiaries are getting credit for productivity enhancements that occurred in the economy, even if they did not benefit from them while they were working. And they also didn't contribute the commensurate tax revenue to finance their benefit now. So um, that would be a simple change we could make right now. I don't actually believe that the task is as daunting as legislators and the public believe it to be. And maybe that will be part of the effort to really reveal the toolkit of reforms that could create more fairness, slow the growth, 
in, uh, in benefit generosity and avoid doing undue harm to those populations that rely most heavily on these programs. Even tweaking uh, benefit formulas to reduce the Medicare subsidy that higher income earners receive or to reduce um, the, the benefits that higher income earners receive in Social Security are ways that we can reduce spending on these programs without, um, without doing a, a harm to those who rely on them. Um, I think that the, the, the most daunting aspect of the reform effort that we face is actually a political hurdle to overcome. And that's why I think a fiscal commission is so important to tackling this. Now, my preferred fiscal commission would have been modeled after the Base Realignment and Closure Commission. That was one highly successful government commission that aimed at closing obsolete military bases after the Cold War. And it benefited from two key features that the Fiscal Commission Act right now does not have. And that was the commissioners were all independent experts, no legislators. So that provided a lot of political cover for the tough decisions the commissioners had to make. And then the uh, commission proposal in the BRAC case benefited from silent approval in Congress, where there were expedited procedures for Congress to reject the BRAC commission's proposal, but no member of Congress had to affirmatively vote for base closings to take place. So again, this double feature of political cover on both sides in generating the reform proposals that are necessary and then in in, in, in passing them into law, um, the BRAC Commission had much more power than this uh, fiscal commission would have. And so I worry that we're staring down another potentially failed effort until we get closer to the expiration of the trust funds for Medicare and Social Security in early 2030. The challenge we have is if we wait that long, legislators will have far fewer tools available in their toolbox to address uh, the solvency of these programs without new tax increases that will hurt working Americans the most. And so the, the goal of tackling this issue earlier than later would be to have more options to distribute the benefit reductions more widely, to reduce potential harm, and also have more pro-growth options available that don't rely on uh, potentially economy-crushing tax hikes on working Americans. Right. Removing the politics from this, I think you're right, is going to be key to getting to getting things started. Um, one last thing for you. I know you've also written a lot about the Congressional Budget Office and reforms that could be brought to the CBO, because for, for people who don't know, the Congressional Budget Office is a nonpartisan part of the government that is supposed to score different pieces of legislation, tell us how much it's going to cost over how many years. And I have seen lawmakers, a lot of times the same lawmaker, praise the CBO for numbers when they tell the story they want them to tell and then criticize the CBO when the numbers don't work out exactly the way that they had wanted to. And I know the CBO comes under some scrutiny sometimes because there is some ways that they approach scoring this legislation that some people have issue with. Can you talk just for a few minutes about some of the ideas that, that you have postulated and some of your colleagues at Cato have postulated about restructuring CBO or the way they go about doing things? So first of all, I would not put the blame on the CBO to the degree that um, legislators have the ability to manipulate CBO scores. It's because of statutes and rules that Congress has imposed on the CBO. So I would put the blame squarely here on members of Congress who, who like to take advantage of their ability to manipulate CBO scores to move policies in their favor. And some of the ways that we could eliminate or reduce some of those opportunities for budget score manipulation include something as simple as um, accounting for the interest costs associated with policy proposals. Uh, failure to take into account interest costs from say new tax cuts or uh, a new spending results uh, often in the CBO score showing a lower impact on the federal budget, then we will actually suffer because we are living in an era of deficits. So any new spending or any tax cuts that aren't offset with spending cuts will drive up the deficit. Um, also, when, uh, when CBO doesn't include interest costs in their budget scores, it allows members to play budget games where, for example, in order to um, have they're, they're spending increase right now and claim that they're paying for it in the future, they will do the spending increase immediately and delay 
any offsetting spending cuts or offsetting tax increases until later in the budget window. And if CBO actually accounted for the interest costs of the spending that happens immediately, they, the, the, the effect would no longer be offset with those future spending cuts or future tax increases, which, by the way, are also highly uncertain. One of the reasons to put off the spending cuts and tax increases, say, eight, nine years down the road is because it gives Congress another opportunity to then waive those offsetting uh, policies when they would actually begin to take place. And so that's a simple change. Another big issue that we've identified this year is given the massive emergency spending that happened during the pandemic with over $5 trillion of new money generated by the Federal Reserve in order to fund this massive emergency spending, we decided to look back at how big of a problem has emergency spending become. And we identified over the past 30 years, emergency spending has, uh, has made up about 43% of our publicly held debt. Uh, at a total amount of 12 trillion. And something as simple for CBO to actually report as part of their budget outlook, um, how much emergency spending the federal government has done in the past and how many of the items that Congress designated as for emergencies actually were aligned with the emergency for which, um, you know, say a supplemental bill was passed. Because what we find is that Congress has become, has got, gotten into the bad habit of using emergency designations to uh, just spend more money, even if it's not at all related to any real emergency. So even just reporting on that, the fact that there's a lack of transparency on emergency spending um, has obscured the size and scope of that uh, problem and how it contributes to our debt. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it makes it more difficult to hold members of Congress accountable when they label completely inappropriate budget issues as for emergencies, just for the sake of uh, being able to spend beyond the limits that they agreed on. So reporting on emergencies and including interest costs, I think, are two uh, low-hanging fruit items that uh, CBO should uh, include in the future. Well, I'll say the national debt, the CBO, these are never the things that lead the evening news oftentimes, but these are really, really important issues and they really matter for the long-term health of our country, our economy. And so they're 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 vital for us to talk about and, and learn some of the details about ways that these things can be fixed, these things can be reformed. And so uh, I want to thank you, uh, Ramina Bacha from the Cato Institute uh, for joining me here on the DC Debrief. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. Wherever it is, you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief.